the Re in Revelation 3.10, and this is what a lot of um, people who don't believe that you will go through the tribulation before the rapture, that the church won't be there. They use this scripture and, it, and as, as proof that a rapture occurs before. Revelation 3.10, and it says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep, which is the word surreal, keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So what they say is, if you're going to be kept from this trial, you're going to not be on the earth. You're just going to be out of there. You're going to be lifted up and removed um, when that trial occurs. One thing about it, it was only written to one of the seven churches. So it's conditional according to you being a Philadelphia Christian, which means they were the best church in, out of the seven, weren't they? They were the, uh, if you read through, they got the most commendations and they were uh, mightily blessed. Um, an open door that no one can shut, all these sorts of things. Um, so it's conditional, but the other thing is, it's also using a word like keep, to Rio, to mean rapture. And it doesn't actually mean rapture. It means to guard, or maintain, or preserve, preserving, or to keep intact. When Noah went on the ark, he was kept from the flood, him and he and his family. When Lot and his family were taken out of Sodom, they were kept, they were kept and protected. They were kept from suffering the wrath that was poured out on that people. Now, the same word is used here in John 17, 15. It says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So it's even saying here, my prayer is not that you get raptured, not that you get lifted up, removed. It's that you that you will be kept safe from the evil one. Even when he's pouring out his, his bowls of God's wrath in a certain place on a certain thing, he will keep his people from that, from those hours of trial. He'll keep them safe. So eternal life, remember a few weeks ago and I've got the sermon that's come up and I was talking about the billions of years. Who remembers that when I was talking about billions of years with in eternity and we spend one billion years and we've just scratched eternity and uh, and then you know we'll be looking at each other, each other and saying we're a billion years old and we've only just entered eternity no matter how many billions you enter into it just keeps on going and even after you've lived a trillion years you're still not scratching the edges of eternity we, we don't fathom how long eternity is we don't fathom the promise the glorious promise that he's given us through his death and resurrection just how wonderful it is who wants to live forever yeah? if you don't 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 turn to jesus christ but we all want to live forever you know and and this is what saddens me is when you go to funerals of people that don't know jesus and they say oh he's in a better place now and i feel like saying well i disagree but you don't because it's a terrible time you know but People say, oh, he's in a better place now. He's not suffering any longer. And I'm thinking, oh, he's, he would much rather be in the suffering he had on earth than where he is now, according to Scripture. He's more alive then than he is now. Yeah, that's right. And so when you don't know Jesus Christ, you've got nothing. 
Doesn't matter how much money you got, doesn't matter how much success you have, doesn't matter. All of these things that we do in this world mean zero. Jesus Christ is everything. We have nothing without Christ. And once we receive the promise, once we receive the inheritance, once he says, enter in, my good and faithful servant. Once we overcome this life and we go into, into glory forever and ever and ever and ever, it will dawn on us just how I will know in myself how little I appreciated what he did while I was living on earth. Do you know that feeling? That you'll feel sometimes you get this revelation of what he's done and that sort of impacts you and you think, gee, I've lived for years without this revelation. I've lived for years taking Christianity for granted, taking Christ for granted, taking the cross for granted. You know, I'm not saying we don't appreciate it and we don't thank him, and, but it's, it's beyond words how wonderful this promise is. And it's all because the Son of God stepped out of heaven and came to earth. The Son of God came down and then he laid his life down. We're doing part 25 of the Revelation series. And uh, we're doing a, uh, in this, we're talking about overcomers. And who's the greatest overcomer in the history of men? Jesus Christ. Amen. How did he overcome? By conquering death. By conquering death on the cross and rose again from the dead. You know, so um, we're right up to that point in the, the churches where we're going to talk about. The overcomers, and as we got, as we have Jesus as the greatest example in that. But the cross is the very power of God. The Word of God says. So let's turn to one Corinthians. Lord, just be with us now. Lord, I pray that your Spirit moves in, you know, through all of us this morning. And I pray your Spirit will guide my uh, thoughts and guide my uh, speaking, so that everything I say comes from uh, straight from the throne of God. And so be with us now, and I hand this sermon over to you for your glory. May you be exalted this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. The cross is the very power of God. This is 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 18. And I think as Christians living in a Christless world, I think we can relate to this passage uh, incredibly well. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. What kind of power? That just the same power that rose Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead. That is power. That is resurrection power. And the message of the cross is foolishness. I remember seeing a debate between Richard Dawkins. Who's, who knows Richard Dawkins? Yep. Richard Dawkins and a, uh, who's the mathematician guy? Uh, John Lennox. Lennox. John Lennox, John yeah. Lennox, yeah. And there was a debate between the two of them, and I think it's the last debate that um, he ever did with either a creationist or an intelligent designer. Richard Dawkins wouldn't debate them again after that point because John Lennox absolutely baffled him with his wisdom. But I remember at one point Richard Dawkins making such a big deal about the cross and the foolishness of the cross. He just couldn't fathom why an almighty God would have to send his son to die on the cross for men. He just couldn't get his wrap his mind around it. It was sheer nonsense. And it was so foolish to him, 
he wanted to throw the whole lot out because he just couldn't wrap his mind around it. He just couldn't get it. And when he was talking, when he was saying these things, I was thinking of this very scripture. I was thinking how God has already foretold us that man would think it foolish that if you preach the cross, the unsaved think it's foolish. But there are always those that God will prepare, aren't there? There's always those that God will touch and move. Now, I'm not saying that it is foolish, because it's not foolish in any way. And the Bible's not telling us that the cross is foolish. It's that the world will consider it foolish. Actually, it's the power of God, the very power of God. It's the wisdom of God. It's the highest form of intelligence and wisdom that you can uh, you know, try to get your mind around is the cross. And it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And if you've ever watched a creationist or an intelligent designer argue with a, uh, an atheist or anyone that conflicts with their thinking, you will see them frustrated. Who's seen that? Over and over again, I've watched videos, and it's the most—it's frustrating for me to watch because I can't believe they don't get it. You know, I'm just thinking, how do you not see that? And they're frustrated because they—they they just can't understand it. And it—it it takes the spirit to understand just what Jesus has done. So, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? By using his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross. And he's made it foolish for everything that the world believes is wisdom, is foolishness. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look, look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Isn't that true? We'll keep going. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. And that's how I feel. I feel like he's chose the foolish thing right here. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. When we get to heaven, we can't boast. There'll be not a boast on our lips. It'll be just, thank you, Jesus, for everything that you have done. You did it as by your mighty power and your power alone. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't that awesome? It's an incredible passage. You know, you, you can go to study philosophy at university level. Are you going to find Jesus? You won't find Jesus. 
You know, you go and study all the all the you know the sciences in this world. You'll study about you know um, you study chemistry and you'll study biology and all that. You're going to find Jesus there? No, because to them it's foolish. To them it's foolish. But to us, it's the very power of God. We see beyond all that. We can see from God's perspective. Let's go to the next scripture, Romans 5, 6 to 11. 5 verse 6, and it says, if everyone's there, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just at the right time, you know, if someone dies without Jesus, do they have power over death? If they die and they don't know Jesus Christ, they have no power over death. And just at the right time, where we were still powerless, as he's talking about a Christian believer, at just the right time, God got us saved. Whether that's early in our life, whether that's in the middle of our life, whether that's at the end of our life. And like Cap the other day, within 24 hours of passing away, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Or my nana at 102 years old gave her life to Jesus Christ. That's powerful. And the other day, I think I was telling you, she was crook in hospital and they gave her up for dead. She had shingles and 102. 103. Well, now she's 103, but she was 102 at the time. Yeah, at the time. She was 102 in hospital and she was, you know, my mum was sending me texts, look, she doesn't look any good. She looks like she could die any moment and all this. And we sort of like, I got on the phone, I said, Nana. And she said, um, I said, Nana, are you, are you okay? She goes, oh, I'll be fine. If they just let me sleep, I'll be fine. <laughs> I'm going, well, look, you are 102, Nan. You, you know, you might not have that long to go. And she goes, look, you know, I'll be fine. I said, look, shall we pray? And she goes, yes, please. And we started to pray. I said, you still believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. So she, held, she has this secret belief. She has to keep it secret because my mum and her husband are atheists. And if she lets them know that she's received Jesus, they are not going to stop until they convert her back to atheism. Mm. And I said to her right in the beginning when, I, when we got to say, just, just keep it a secret. It's between you and God. Yeah. She's not going to go out street witnessing at 102. It would be a world record. It would be a world record, wouldn't it? It's old lady. Yeah, anyway, she's anyway, after all that, she was crook as a dog in hospital. And they're giving her up for dead, everyone, the doctors, everyone. And then all of a sudden, she's in rehab. And I'm going, in rehab? 102, now she's home. She's bounced back, she's home. And I, how are you feeling? Isn't it great? Oh, your mother cooks beautiful meals. So she's back, she's fine again. So she'll probably go to 110, 115 now. Hey? That's it, yeah. But I'm just wanting to keep... You know, it's amazing, just at the right time. It says it here, doesn't it? Just at the right time when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for every sinner. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Did you catch that? How much more will we be saved from God's wrath? What's that? The wrath of hell. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So 
if when were God's enemies were reconciled through his death, so but that's what the water baptism symbolizes. When you go into the water, it's your you're identifying with his death, and when you come up, you're identifying with his life. It was like, you know, um, celebrating the Easter in your in your life. If you want to use it for lack of a better term, people got this problem with the word Easter and, and rightly so. But um, it's Jesus died and he rose again, and that is exactly what happens at the baptism as well. For if we're God's enemies were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. These are the most precious words in all of Scripture. We have been reconciled to Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection. Amen. Now to the overcomer. 1 John 5, uh, 5, 10 to 11. Let's just turn there. 1 John 5, 10. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. It's not this life is with his son. This life is in, in him. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. So eternal life. Remember a few weeks ago and I've got the sermon that's come up and I was talking about the billions of years. Who remembers that when I was talking about billions of years in eternity? And we spend one billion years and we've just scratched eternity. And then... You know, we'll be looking at each other and saying we're a billion years old and we've only just entered eternity. No matter how many billions you enter into, it just keeps on going. And even after you've lived a trillion years, you're still not scratching the edges of eternity. We, we don't fathom how long eternity is. We don't fathom the promise, the glorious promise that he's given us through his death and resurrection. Just how wonderful it is. Who wants to live forever? Yeah? If you don't, don't, don't turn to Jesus Christ. But we all want to live forever, you know. And, and this is what saddens me is when you go to funerals of people that don't know Jesus and they say, oh, he's in a better place now. And I feel like saying, well, I disagree. But you don't because it's a terrible time, you know. But people say, oh, he's in a better place now. He's not suffering any longer. And I'm thinking, well, he's, he would much rather be in the suffering he had on earth than where he is now, according to Scripture. More alive then than he is now. Yeah, that's right. And so when you don't know Jesus Christ, you've got nothing. Doesn't matter how much money you got, doesn't matter how much success you have, doesn't matter. All of these things that we do in this world mean zero. Jesus Christ is everything. We have nothing without Christ. And once we receive the promise, once we receive the inheritance, once he says, enter in my good and faithful servant. Once we overcome this life and we go into, into glory forever and ever and ever and ever, it will dawn on us just how I will know in myself how little I appreciated what he did while I was living on earth. Do you know that feeling? That you'll feel sometimes you get this revelation of what he's done and it sort of impacts you and you think, but you have lived for years without this revelation. I've lived for years taking Christianity for granted, taking Christ for granted, Taking the cross for granted. You know, I'm not saying we don't appreciate it and we don't thank him, and, but 
it, it's, it's beyond words how wonderful this promise is. And it's all because the Son of God stepped out of heaven and came to earth. The Son of God came down and then he laid his life down. And, and there's a, an interesting passage I'm going to read from this book. And it says, The prayer in Gethsemane is exceptional in every way. The superincumbent load of the world's sin was upon him. The lowest point of his depression had been reached. The bitterest cup of all, his bitter cup, is being pressed to his lips. The weakness of all his weaknesses, the sorrow of all his sorrows, the agony of all his agony is now upon him. The flesh is giving out with its fainting and trembling pulsations like the trickling of his heart's blood. His enemies have thus far triumphed. Hell is in jubilee and bad men are joining in the hellish carnival. Gethsemane was Satan's hour, Satan's power and Satan's darkness. It was the hour of forming all of Satan's forces for a final last conflict. Jesus had said, The prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. The conflict for earth's mastery is before him. And this is the sad paragraph. It says, The Spirit led and drove him into the stem conflict and severe temptation of the wilderness. But his comforter, his leader, and his inspiration through history seems to have left him now. He began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And we hear him under, his, under this great pressure exclaiming, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. The depression, the conflict and agony had gone to the very core of his spirit and it sunk into the verge of death. Sore amazed he was. Surprise and awe depressed his soul. Very heavy was the, was the hour of hell's midnight which fell upon his spirit. Very heavy was this hour when all the sins of all the world, of every man, of all men, fell upon his immaculate soul with all their stain and all their guilt. He cannot abide the presence of his chosen friends. They cannot enter into the depths and demands of this fearful hour. He trusted and set watchers who were asleep. His father's face was hid. His father's approving voice is silent. The Holy Spirit who had been with him through all the trying hours of his life seemed to have withdrawn from the scene. Alone he must drink the cup. Alone he must tread the winepress of God's fierce wrath and of Satan's power and darkness and of man's envy, cruelty and vindictiveness. Jesus was completely alone. He was left for dead. And this was before the cross. He was sweating blood. What does it take for a man to sweat blood? The stress that was upon him. The father who he was always in his presence had, had departed. The Holy Spirit wasn't there comforting him. He was left to suffer the fate of sin alone. Just so that we don't have to go there. Just so that we don't have to go into that place of separation forever and ever and ever in hell. Jesus died. And he went through that. What a glorious Lord we have, amen? We have an amazing, amazing God. Who worked that away. Let's go to chapter 1 John, chapter 5, verse 1. So you're already there. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is the love of God. To obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You can't overcome the world, you can't overcome all the temptations of the world without Jesus Christ and without believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. If we could get the communion, guys. Turn to Revelation 12, verse 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren, or our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then it says about the overcomers, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood. There's power in the blood. Amen? There's power. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to... What does it say there? Did not love their lives so much as to... Shrink from death. So life in Christ is beyond this. This body. Life in Christ is... We're in him eternally. And as Justin Martyr said, you can kill this body, but you can do me no real harm. The body is just a tent. This is not our permanent abode. When it's transformed into our imperishable body, then it'll be our permanent abode. But as long as it's a perishable body, guess what? It's going to perish. Unless you're raptured. But then when you're raptured, you receive your imperishable body immediately. And that's another story. We've already done a sermon on that. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians. The people of the world believe that Christ died so that they could have a long weekend. Do you know that? <laughs> but we know the truth, don't we? It is nice to have a long weekend, but Christ died. Did you know all the long, long. <laughs> yeah, only the Christians should have a long weekend. That, wouldn't that really irritate <laughs> And we'll say, who's foolish now? <laughs> they should be thanking the Christians for our Lord. All right, now the girls are... Well, let's read it together. All right. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's do that in remembrance of him. We took bread and this is his body that has been given for us. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's eat it now in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we take this cup in remembrance of your blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Lord. Don't you always love grape juice like that? A little bit of grape juice. It tastes so good. <laughs> See, salvation in Christ tastes good. The blood of Jesus tastes good. The body of Jesus tastes good. Who likes bread? Who shouldn't like bread? <laughs> Bread is good. It's not too much. Gluten free. Gluten free. Somebody has to. All right. Now, um, my son John brought to attention that uh, last week I was speaking on um, the word keep, which is the Greek word uh, terio. I don't know if you say it like that, but I'm not up for correction right now. But I'm going to talk about it again because I actually mixed it up a little bit. I um, referred to the word terio to the wrong, wrong word, so I want to um, correct what I spoke on last week um, quickly. The Re in Revelation 3.10, and this is what a lot of um, people who don't believe that you will go through the tribulation before the rapture, that the church won't be there. They use this scripture and, it, and as, as proof that a rapture occurs before. Revelation 3.10, and it says, Since you have kept my command... To endure patiently, I will also keep, which is the word Terea, keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So what they say is, if you're going to be kept from this trial, you're going to not be on the earth. You're just going to be out of there. You're going to be lifted up and removed um, when that trial occurs. One thing about it, it was only written to one of the seven churches. So it's conditional, according to you being a Philadelphian Christian, which means they were the best church in, out of the seven, weren't they? they were the, uh, if you read through, they got the most commendations and they were uh, mightily blessed. Um, an open door that no one can shut, all these sorts of things. Um, so it's conditional, but the other thing is, it's also using a word like keep, to Rio, to mean rapture. And... It doesn't actually mean rapture. It means to guard or maintain or preserve, preserving or to keep intact. When Noah went on the ark, he was kept from the flood, him and he and his family. When Lot and his family were taken out of Sodom, they were kept. They were kept and protected. They were kept from suffering the wrath that was poured out on that people. Now, the same word is used here in John 17, 15. It says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So it's even saying here, my prayer is not that you get raptured, not that you get lifted up, removed. It's that you, that you will be kept safe from the evil one. Even when he's pouring out his, his bowls of God's wrath in a certain place on a certain thing, he will keep his people from that, from those hours of trial. He'll keep them safe. And uh, so I just wanted to clarify that because last week when I said, my prayer is not that you take them out, I said Terio was the word take. And uh, so I confused it. But it's, it's keep to keep them and keep them safe. So I just thought I'd clarify that before we just 
go into our overcoming sermon. And it's relevant to uh, Easter message because it's all about overcoming this life, isn't it? By the blood of Jesus, by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Ephesus Revelation, uh, which is in Revelation 2.7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God, in the paradise of God. So let's see where the paradise of God is, or what it says there in Revelation 22, 1-2b. The Bible uses the word paradise and heaven interchangeably. Paradise, before Jesus came, paradise was Abraham's bosom. It was under the ground. And it's where those believing Jews, and anyone who believed in the God of the Jews, went and they went to be with Abraham. Now after the resurrection it says that he led captives in his train. He led captives out of that ground paradise, that uh, below ground paradise and he took them with him into, parad into paradise heaven which is where Jesus has been ever since because he says he's at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. And he goes there to prepare a place for us there. He doesn't say he went to the belly of the earth to prepare a place for us. No, it says he went to the belly of the earth when he died for three days. He went there to set the captives free to get the keys to death and Hades. Amen? Yes. So now he's in, he's in heaven with those that have believed ever since. There's a, there's a movement at the moment with, among Christians um, who are saying there is no heaven for Christians that, that we all go into Abraham's bosom, we all go underground when we die. That's, I just can't see where they get that from. Well, I can see where they, the scriptures they use, but it's not valid. Revelation 22, are we there? Yes. Revelation 22. And that's the last chapter of the book. Verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Not necessarily twelve trees, but it's a tree that bears twelve crops. One per month. Some people say when you go up into heaven that you're going to just enter into eternity. There's no time. Well, how will that affect that scripture where it says every month that there's fruit bared in heaven every month? It's because we will go into eternity time, a timed eternity. That's why I said when I said one day we'll look at each other and say we're a million years old now. We've been up here a million years. And we see many crops of fruit on the tree of life. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. So that's interesting. I find that interesting that that you will smell the leaves or you know lick the leaves. I don't know what you do with the leaves, but say so you will never ever get sick again. I find that interesting. I just think, won't God just take it all away? Why do you have to go and you know um, use the leaves for the healing? But that's what it says. So God still wants us to you know look after ourselves and care for ourselves. You know. Go and heal yourself with the leaves. You know, you, you, you may have overeaten some of the fruit, may have had a stomachache. Who's overeaten plums or something like that? You know, I'm not saying you get stomach aches in heaven, right? but it's just I'm trying to work out from the wording there that in heaven there will be fruit, uh, trees with fruit on them, 
And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. So those leaves will heal everyone. So obviously there'll be something in, we'll be putting those leaves in everything we eat in heaven. It's interesting. Smyrna, Revelation 2.11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's go to Revelation 20. You're right there, 20, verse 14. Everyone there? Verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So what's the lake of fire? Well, people, some people sort of use the term hell synonymously with that. Um, but we find out that hell is picked up and thrown into the lake of burning. So hell is also, uh, Scripture says, underground. So there was paradise... Uh, of Abraham's bosom was underground and then there was hell that well, is still underground I believe and there was even a parable or not a parable, the story that Jesus used about Lazarus and the rich man and the rich man was where? he was in hell he was nameless, he didn't have a name he was in hell but Lazarus who was the poor man had a name and he was in Abraham's bosom but there was a Chasm between them that no one could cross, and he couldn't. Co he, even if he felt like going and giving him some water, he couldn't. So it speaks about those two areas. Yes, Bill. Uh, Rob, sorry. Uh, could the lake of fire be the sun? Like well, this is what. Uh, is chicken, chicken? Yeah. Yeah. Steve Steve, I found that pretty, a pretty valid type of um, you know uh, theory. It doesn't say it's the sun. And then but the, the earth will be purified from this evil. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. The earth could be the sun. Oh, sorry, the earth, the hell could be the no. Lake of sulfur could be the sun. Everything's getting confusing right now. But yeah, it, that's one of the theories uh, that I. Uh, if you watch Steve Chicanotti, Chicanotti, have you seen his last name? Chocolanti. Sounds like a like a type of. Even scientists refer to certain sections of the sun as being a lake. A lake, they do, yeah, yeah, and and sulphur that rains down too, because there's rain on the sun, yes. and it's sulphur rain, yes, yeah, which is, talks about the lake of burning sulphur and sulphur raining down. So they believe what if this is true that they will be picking up um, hell and throwing it in to the sun, and that that therefore Isaiah 66, where it speaks of every week, every Sabbath going out and gazing upon the souls of, that have died. Who knows that scripture? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, most of us here do. Um, just for the sake of this discussion now, I may as well go there. I'm getting right off my, uh, my notes. Isaiah, let's go to Isaiah. All right, the last chapter of Isaiah, verse 22. And I've, I've spoken on this about, I don't know, four or five times in, in church over the years, but it's a... It's a worthy one. Everyone there? As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath, that's one Saturday to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, their worm will not die, which is where Jesus gets that saying. 
where the worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. I used to think that they would go out and they'd look down into a, a viewing platform and look down into the lake of burning sulfur. But is it that we go out and we look up? And in our imperishable bodies, we have like telescopic vision and we can see the souls in the sun. How many people have died not knowing Jesus over the centuries? Just billions and billions and billions. Billions and billions. You need a big place. Is the sun big enough? I think so. It's a theory. I'm not saying it's doctrine, but it's a theory and a fairly valid theory. All right, and let's go to um, the next one. To him who overcomes Pergamum. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, I want to talk about those two things, the hidden manna and the white stone with a name on it. So what is hidden manna? We all know that manna was what fell in the desert during the 40 years of uh, Israel you know, wandering in the desert. Um, but some say that, that, that we receive this hidden manna in this life in the form of uh, the hidden closet life with, with Christ. And I take that on board. You know, he who eats, eats me and drinks my blood has eternal life. So that is the hidden manna we receive. Let's go to John just to read about that. John 6, this is all valid to... Um, to this day as well, 654. It says, when you're there, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. So he's symbolic of the bread, the manna that fell from heaven, Jesus coming down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Isn't that amazing? That's a, a very, very powerful analogy, and you can go very, very deep with it as well. I believe it also references the glorious riches of Christ, the bread of life himself, revealed to us in magnificent ways in the kingdom forever and ever and ever eternally. We will just never ever get to the bottom of the, or the depths of Jesus Christ. We will never. We could be there a trillion, trillion years and we will still be mesmerized by Jesus Christ and by God the Father and by the Holy Spirit. We will never get to the bottom. Who's been, had the, uh, sat through those sermons where you're just getting amazed at the revelations you're receiving? You know, imagine that, but you know, quadruple that in, in you know, even more. You'll be so amazed. You'll be so amazed continuously. You'll just live for eternity in absolute amazement. You know, it's a wonderful thing and to think about. And it's hard to think of that you could live like that forever. Because here we can go through mundane times. Who has mundane times in life? You just sort of cruise and nothing much is exciting, nothing much blows you away. You just sort of cruise like that. But imagine living a life where you're just continually, you know, just excited about everything that you're getting shown and having revealed to you. That's what he promises to give us. So what is the white stone? There's a few theories. There's actually about eight theories. I went to gotquestions.org and he had, had, he had sort of 
collated a whole heap of theories. I, I just took uh, three of the best ones. In ancient Greece, jury members would cast a white stone to signify an acquittal, whereas a black stone proclaimed the defendant guilty. So the weakness of this interpretation is that the stone cast in the courts did not have names inscribed on them, but it was a white stone meant you're, you're, you're innocent. innocent, the black one meant you're guilty. So that's one, and I think that, that fits um, quite well. One of the better accepted explanations of the white stone has to do with the high priest's breastplate, which contained 12 stones. Each of these stones had the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on it. As he ministered in the temple, the high priest bore the names of God's people into the God's presence. And in the same way, the white stone with the believer's name written on it could be a reference to our standing in God's presence. So there's another one. But I think this one is the best one. Can you read that? Yeah. The best theory regarding the meaning of the white stone probably has to do with the ancient Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victors of athletic games. The winner of a contest was awarded a white stone with his name inscribed on it, and this served as his ticket to a special awards banquet. Isn't that amazing? And that's exactly what this white stone will give us access into, is the, you know, banquet with the lamb, you know, we'll go in and, you know, there'll be an angel at the door and we'll go, hey, white stone, <laughs> let me in. And it's, uh, the victors get, you know, those that overcome. And so that's, that's an incredible um, typology there, or uh, analogy. According to this view, Jesus promised, promises the overcomer's entrance to the eternal victory celebration in heaven. The new name most likely refers to the Holy Spirit's work of conforming believers to the holiness of Christ, as we see in Romans 8.29 and Colossians 3.10, which we won't read right now. Thyatira, Revelation 2.26-29, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we know, Jesus is going to rule with an iron scepter, and we are going to rule with him. And it says, He who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. It's talking about Jesus, and he will dash them to pieces like pottery. But we will rule with him in that same manner. He'll give us that authority. But we want to know what this morning star business is. The morning star. Because who's also referred to as the morning Satan. star? Satan. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, I will also give him the morning star. Jesus Christ is described as the morning star in 2 Peter 1.19. And he identifies himself as the bright morning star in Revelation 22.16. So let's just look at that anyway. 22.16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He calls himself the bright morning star. Jesus and Satan both are considered morning stars. The first reference uh, to the morning star as an individual is in Isaiah. This is from gotquestions.org. Isaiah 14.12. Let's turn there so we can see it. There's some groups that believe because Jesus is the morning star and Satan is the morning star, they're spiritual brothers. The Mormons believe that. That's what they teach. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, when I first read that, I thought, what? I don't believe this. So I rang the head office of the Mormons church just to ask someone who's, you know, right at the top. And he goes, yes, that's what I believe. So I got confirmation from the horse's mouth. 
Isaiah 14, so go to chapter 14. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Now notice he's called the morning star. Jesus is referred to as the bright morning star. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You've been cast down to the earth. So whether that means he is still considered the morning star, doesn't say, but he has been cast down. And we know in the book of Revelation it says that Satan has been cast down to the earth. They parallel. And he's casting down. And he's making war against those of the people of God, the people that believe in the Lord. So how you have fallen, oh, there's the verse. We didn't even have to look it up. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. And the King James and the New King James both translate morning star as Lucifer, son of the morning. It is clear from the rest of the passage that Isaiah is referring to Satan's fall from heaven. And we know that Jesus referred that he said he saw him fall from heaven. So in this case, the morning star refers to Satan. Jesus unmistakably identifies himself as the morning star. So why are both Jesus and Satan described as the morning star? It is interesting to note that the concept of the morning star is not the only concept that is applied to both Jesus and Satan. Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, Satan is compared to a lion seeking someone to devour. So the point is this, both Jesus and Satan to a certain extent have similarities to lions. Jesus is similar to a lion in that he is the king. He is royal and he's majestic. Satan is similar to a lion in that he seeks to devour other creatures. So that is where the similarities between Jesus and Satan and lions end, however. Jesus and Satan are like lions in very different ways. The idea of the bright morning star is a star that outshines all the others. And Jesus is the one who is called bright. Bright. Outshines the others. Satan was a morning star. Jesus, as God incarnate, the Lord of the universe, is the bright and morning star. Jesus is the most holy and powerful light in all the universe. So you could compare it to the light of the sun and the light of the moon. The light of the moon reflects the light of the sun. So 2 Corinthians 11.14, And no wonder since Satan himself masquerades, what, as an angel of light. He's masquerading now. So while both Jesus and Satan can be described as morning stars, in no sense is this equating Jesus and Satan as the same or brothers, as the Mormons believe. Satan is a created being. His light only exists to the extent that God created it. Jesus is the light of the world, John 9.5. So only Jesus' light is bright and self-existent. Satan may have been a morning star, but he is only a poor imitation of the one true bright morning star, which is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. You can see why I go to gotquestions.org for some answers. He's done a good job there. Satan was meant to be a morning star like Jesus, just as we are meant to be. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we're called to be lights, just as Jesus is a light. At one stage in, in heaven past, Satan was a light, a morning star. He was held in high honour by Jesus himself, held him in high honour. He was certainly not to be not like Jesus in any way in the sense that he was created by Jesus. Jesus gave him life, but he 
was a, a high-ranking angel, up there with the Archangel Michael and Gabriel. But he fell because he started to, instead of directing the worship, this is what they believe, instead of directing the worship to God, he directed them to himself and he absorbed it all to himself. And that's why we now see Satan in the rock and roll world, music and popular music industry, because they all absorb the worship, don't they? You know, they're all up there, you know, holding their hands in the air and everyone, you know, you get 50,000 people all going, yeah, like this at the same time. You get a bit of an ego trip. You start to think yourself pretty, pretty good. You are a god in the eyes of those people. And there's even so many, you know, things where uh, the, the rock and roll stars will come out and people will fall down on their faces. And even if it's in jest, it's still honouring them <coughs> like they're something to be worshipped. And they do get worshipped. They do absolutely get worshipped. You know, when you, you know, if you ever see footage of an ACDC concert, you see 50,000 fans worshipping those guys, those old codgers. They're getting worshipped, full on. They play essentially the same riff over and over again, don't they, Jamie? <laughs> but it's, they're getting worshipped. But we aren't meant to receive the worship, are we? We're meant to redirect it to Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. So Sardis, Revelation 3, 5 to 6. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. What does that represent? Purity. White always represents purity. Righteousness. And the, you'll be clothed in righteousness, robes of righteousness, and, and be given a gown of salvation. We'll like them to be dressed in I'll never blot out his name from the book of life. Some people, when they read that, they think, well, does every person, when they get born on earth, is then, because if a baby dies in Jesus, if a baby dies, does he go straight to heaven, he or she? Does he? Of course. Yeah? Of course. Absolutely. Because they're innocent. So their name must be in the book of life. Right, because every baby is innocent because you've got to become like children to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So a child dies at one year old, goes straight to heaven. So that child's name would be in the book of life. So my theory and many people's theory is that when everyone is born, their names are in the book of life. And if they die young in infancy, they will go straight to being with Jesus Christ. But there comes a time where they make a decision. And if they make a decision uh, in favour of Christ, their name stays there. If they make a decision against Christ, their names are removed. And that's why they, he used the words, I will never blot your name out. If it couldn't be blotted out once it's written there, then he wouldn't have used that term. Your name will be in the book of life. But it says blot out. So it's talking about erasing something. Right? So it works in, like if you imagine if there was a, a million babies born in a certain city and then that city uh, got destroyed and those million babies will all, would have all died but they've all gone to be with Christ. Amen? Yes. As Christians we've got to believe that. But if those million babies all grew up, would they have gone to be with Christ, all of them? No. There's a good chance that a good portion won't. So blessed are those that die, you know, young. I've got a one-way ticket straight to heaven. You know? That's my theory if you, if you want to come and argue with me. I'd like to see how uh, it might be wrong. And it could be wrong. So I'm not going to try not to be dogmatic on it. But it makes sense to me. Um, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. You know when I read that, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels, I just... You know, I, I, 
this, that time when we're standing at judgment, we all will stand at judgment. Amen. We will all stand before God. And Jesus comes up because it's my turn. And then as I'm, I'm walking up before God, Jesus comes up and puts his arm around me. How comforted would you feel? You'll be like, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I stuck to Jesus Christ through thick and thin. I didn't let go. I stayed the course. I endured. And I'm here now, and I'm facing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and Jesus walks up beside me, put his arm around me. Comfort. That comfort. You couldn't explain how you will feel because, you know, we know that God has the power to throw you into hell forever and ever and ever. And at that point, it'll be like a burning sulfur. But Jesus comes up beside you, puts his arm around you, and says, Don't worry, I love you. Don't worry. I'll speak on your behalf. That's beautiful. So those, those are beautiful words, aren't they? He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Nearly finished, guys. Philadelphia. To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar. 1 Peter. Let's just quickly turn there. We've got to read that. <clears throat> these, and get this. These um, promises to the overcomers, uh, all these promises come to every overcomer. It's not just to those churches. It's these promises are just the collation of the promises that God promises to give us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. So as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, so the living stone is Jesus Christ, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we are. We are living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's what we're meant to be. And then if we shoot down to 2, 9 to 10, so, and it says, But you are a chosen people. This is an often quoted passage. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's what we are, a royal priesthood, people belonging to God, a holy people. We are to be those, those people. And then it says here, he who overcomes, I'll make a pillar. Now what's a pillar? I think that's a pillar. There. Yeah, strong support, holding up the roof. We're holding up the next level. They're powerful. So he's going to make us really strong, super strong, able to carry a lot of weight. So never again will he leave it. And this is what he says to the overcomers. Never again will you leave this temple. Never again will you leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. Um, and that's in Revelation 21, 1-4. We won't read it now, but it's basically talking about this huge cube that's coming down from heaven and it's called the city of God. And it's roughly about 2,000 kilometres, one direction, 2,000 that way and 2,000 that way. So it's a big cube and it's going to drop down um, on the earth. And in that place, you will never leave. Remember we talked about how long it would take you to get through the whole place when we were talking about that? You imagine walking 2,000 kilometres that way and then 
you know, you go over 100 metres or 200 metres and you have to do another 2,000 kilometres and you're only on the bottom level and you've got 2,000 kilometres of levels that way, you're just going to be in this city forever and ever and ever. And that's why it says you will never leave it because you won't have to. And then when you get to the end of it and you've been in, you've been in there for 10,000 years and you've seen the whole cube, God says, go and start again. And I go, oh, well, I've already seen it. Well, I've changed it. It's all different. It's all new. It's evolving, growing, changing. So you start again. Everything's mind-blowing again. You just go on. So these uh, people who have been made pillars will never leave this city and the temple. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from out of heaven. And I'll also write on him my new name. Now, we don't know what that is, so I'm not going to go and make any kind of uh, assumptions on that one. People make all kinds of assumptions on that. They like to do that. I think there's enough that's been spoken about in Scripture to talk about without having to talk about things that aren't spoken in Scripture. We should not go beyond the, the written word. The word. All right. Laodicea, Revelation 3, 21 to 22. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now this comes to potentially the, the worst church of all, a, a, an offer to come and sit on the throne, come and rule with me, come and sit up here on the throne. You know, if you ever walked into a, a king's chamber and he said, come and sit on the throne with me, it would be the greatest honour anyone could ever give. And I believe that it's said to the Laodicean church, because the Laodicean church is probably the most wicked and all, or in a sense has the most temptation, the most against it. Um, and uh, so a great, great promise has been given to that church. He who has a, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Phew. I finished the seven churches. You happy about that? Ah, I need water now. That's it. I'll finish and then I'll drink. So the next sermon in this series, guess what? It's going to be Revelation 4, which is the throne in heaven. And there's some good stuff coming about the throne in heaven. So I hope you can come next week. We plan to do that. Um, I'm really looking forward to working on this because I've been spending so much time on the seven churches. It would be good to do something else. And then guess what comes after that? The seven seals. Yeah. So that's going to be powerful stuff. So please get along for that. All right, let's pray. Thank you, God. We just thank you for this time now, Lord. And we thank you that, Jesus, you came 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you laid your life down for us 2,000 years ago, Lord. And uh, you've risen from the dead. You overcame death and Hades. And uh, now that we who believe have life in you, and the, the power that raised you from the dead will also raise us at, uh, from the dead as well when, when we come to the end of our lives here. So we thank you for this wonderful promise and, this wonderful, um, and these wonderful scriptures that give us this hope uh, to believe that, Lord, that uh, we can live eternally just as you have promised. So, Lord, increase all our faith. Um, really help us to uh, really embrace the faith, embrace Christianity to read the word and to pray and to seek you, Lord, and just to um, just to be more active as Christians in our community. And I pray that your spirit will move upon us this weekend and uh, touch us, Lord, as we may be going and having lunch with people and, and so on, Lord. Let our conversations be holy and directed at you and, um, and may we uh, help people to find you, Lord, through our 
our lives and also through the things that we say. And so, Lord, be with us now in the precious name of Jesus. And cover us all in your precious blood. And uh, look after us this week. Protect us, Lord. And keep us safe. And bring us back together next week. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.